Don't get caught up in comparisons when you see the wicked. Wait on the Lord, trust him. Commit your way, stay meek. And so like Abraham's descendants, you and I can trust that God is directing even our paths. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Father, this is the word of the living God. And this morning we approach this text with a joy mingled with expectation. Lord, because we have the scriptures in our own native tongue. Lord, that is only possible because of men like Tyndale and others who were willing to pay the price and count the cost and do the work. And so, Lord, we come to your word this morning with that joy, but also it's mingled with an expectation, Lord, as we lean forward in our seats this morning, desiring to hear you speak. We thank you, Lord, that you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? And so, Lord, we don't look to man's wisdom. We don't look to the philosophies of this world, which are bankrupt. We look to the word of God, which is inerrant, authoritative, inspired by God, and it is sufficient. Lord, we pray that you would instruct and encourage our hearts as we open it this morning. And Lord, as we close it this morning, may you do a fresh work by your spirit of applying these things to our lives. We want to see our community one to Christ. We want to see our fellowship that we have in the spirit um, here as a fellowship, as a church, Lord. We want to see that increase and grow. We want to see your glory as Moses prayed. But Lord, we thank you that you've communicated your word to us. You've not left us as orphans. We have the spirit of God. Now speak for your servants are listening. We ask that in the name that will be proclaimed, not only in heaven and on earth, but it will be declared Jesus is Lord by every tongue and every knee will bow. So Lord, we thank you for this opportunity today to study and to exposit your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. When two people want to make some sort of an agreement, there's a variety of ways that they can proceed. We as a church, if you haven't heard yet, you, you have missed some big news. We are now under contract with a, a beautiful property, a beautiful facility. We've been doing inspections this week, and we hope to get a sizable file that will tell us what is going on with this property, and then we'll make the decision as a fellowship to proceed or to walk away and say, no thanks. But we're praying that it's going to be the first, that it's going to be, thank you, Lord. Uh, things are coming together. Continue to pray. Continue to give. We're, as you know, raising around $100,000 for uh, our uh, next step. But in the contract that we signed for this property, we wanted to ensure from Scott Hamilton uh, and our legal team, we wanted to make sure that we spent diligent uh, time combing through the contract to make sure there wasn't any silliness in there. There wasn't any fine print that we missed. So we're not getting scammed. But when we signed on the dotted line, and once the signatures or the initials on the contract with the date, signed, sealed, delivered, uh, we basically have a binding contract. 
Now, there's other agreements where a contract would be a little bit uh, su superfluous or overkill. You wouldn't need to have a contract. Sometimes a good old-fashioned handshake is more than sufficient. We just agree to do this. We don't need to sign anything, but we know that we're going to do this. Have you ever considered for a minute, though, how, how strange an act the handshake itself actually is? How odd this is. We extend our right hand. You don't shake with your left. You extend the right hand out into the middle space. You embrace the other person's right hand. You squeeze. By the way, shoreline men, if we're, we need to improve in this area. Uh, when we shake a man's hand, we squeeze, okay? Let's not do this dead fish kind of thing, like, good to see you. Let's squeeze. Let's be manly. And then we do this weird thing where we do an up and down motion. Have you ever thought how silly or strange this is? We do an up and down motion, and we've already greeted one another in some way, but, but this extra greeting confirms what we've just promised to do. We are saying with that handshake, I'll keep my end of the agreement, you keep your end to the best of our ability. Well, in the text we're going to study this morning, we are going to see God's agreement with Abram. But what we're not going to see is what we see in many agreements we're used to seeing today. Many lease agreements have with them a two-sided or multilateral condition. The idea is that I will pay my payment on time, and therefore, because my rent is paid on time, I can stay in this home without being evicted. I can pay this payment and my car will not be repossessed. I can pay this payment and my services will continue to be rendered without interruption. And in these agreements, you do your, your part, I will do my part. I will uphold my end of the bargain. This is what we think about when we think about agreements. But when we consider God's covenant, particularly with Abram and the new covenant of grace, we realize today as we open this chapter, what we just read and what we're about to study is not a multilateral agreement. It's not a contract where Abram will do his part, God will do his part. No, this is all of God's doing. It is all of his initiation, all of his initiative, and Abram is simply the recipient. Now, if you're new to our church or haven't been with us for a while, we are concluding our study of Genesis chapter 15. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Genesis. We've been looking at God's covenant with Abram. And last week we saw in verses 1 through 6 that God speaks to Abram. He communicates to him in this prophetic way that he need not fear that I myself will be your shield and your reward. God will be the defense and the delight of his people. And we saw last week in those first six verses, the very first time in scripture where Abram speaks to God and he addresses him as Yahweh Adonai, a title that conveys God's majestic, sovereign rule in Abram's life. Abram is not doubting the promises by asking questions. We'll see an additional question asked this morning. He's not doubting, but desiring them to come to pass. We saw last week the promise of an heir reaffirmed as God shows him the stars in the sky and says, so shall your offspring be. And we saw Abram's response was loyal, active trust in this promise. And then God credits Abram's faith as righteousness. But we stopped before we got to verse 7, where God doesn't just promise enduring life, but also now, today, enduring land. Today we're going to study what at first glance seems to be an odd and confusing scene as God cuts a covenant with Abram. And if you didn't know better, 
you would read this text and it sounds like the makings of a strange horror film. There's dead animal carcasses, there's birds flying overhead, there's dreadful darkness, but you'd be mistaken if you thought this was only a fearful scene. Now, this is a joyful passage, so much so that it led one of the greatest expositors in our generation, R.C. Sproul, to exclaim that if he were marooned on a deserted island and he had only one verse from the Bible, he would choose one of the verses in the section that we're going to study today. I'm not going to tell you which one it is because you won't listen anymore and you'll try to figure out which one it is. But we'll get to that. This is an amazing narrative filled with authority, amity, and assurance. And so we're going to see three things together this morning if you're taking note, and I do hope you are. Verse uh, 7 through 12, we'll see that God confirms his covenant to Abram. God confirms his covenant. We're also going to see verses 13 through 16, God's course for Abram, and it's certain. And finally, we'll see God's covenant with Abram is unilateral. And what we'll also see together today is that God, though he has a gracious, intentional plan for Abram, he also is sovereign and merciful to all who trust in Christ. Daniel Aiken said, taken as a whole, this passage provides an explicit paradigm for how God relates to fallen humanity. God's salvation is wrought by grace through faith. And so we're going to see that today, and I pray that our hearts will be encouraged, enlightened, and refreshed as we look at this great picture of the gospel. So let's begin with the first section. God confirms his covenant to Abram. Notice with me verse 7. God said to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now, we don't know the time that transpired between verses 6 and 7. We've given it a week here in our study. We're not sure how long it it was, but verse 7 begins with and. And so based on that, it's probable that this happened very soon after God had credited Abram's faith as righteousness. And notice with me that God says to him, he reveals himself to Abram by saying, I am Yahweh. Now your Bible should have for the word Lord, the reason I said I am Yahweh instead of Lord, I am the Lord, Your Bibles should have the word LORD here in all caps, in all capital letters, L-O-R-D. And that indicates to us this is not the word LORD, lowercase l-O-R-D, like master or uh, someone who a servant would call LORD, like Adonai. Adonai would be the appropriate word for LORD. The LORD here is in all caps because, remember, this is God's very name. His name is Yahweh. And so notice how he says, I am the LORD. I am. This is how Yahweh will later reveal himself to Moses. Listen to this exchange between God and Moses coming up in the next book in our Bibles in Exodus chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What do I say? Do I say Baal? Do I say Molech? Who are you? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. So that clears it up. That actually can cause maybe more question, more confusion. But then he said, said, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. Uh, Abram has already called him Yahweh Adonai, the Lord God. With Melchizedek, he learned that he can call God God Most High in Genesis 14. But here he says, I am Yahweh. This name I am has with it 
this concept that God is completely independent. He is completely supreme. He relies on nothing and no one for life or existence. Theologians call this quality aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. That means God doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need anything. Life exists within God himself. He's independent of creation. It also implies he's eternal and he is immutable or unchanging. You and I are not the I am. You and I are not independent of creation. We're very much reliant upon the breath that you've been breathing this morning for our existence. God says, I am. There's no past tense. There's no need for a future tense in the divine vocabulary. God is present. God is here. God is sufficient for whatever we need. And this is the title, I am, that Jesus took upon himself in John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him because this was blasphemy. He was making himself equal with God. But notice how God wants Abram to identify him. He says, I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now, in his commentary, Matthew Henry suggests that the Hebrew here can be translated out of the fire of the Chaldees. Now, that's fascinating because Jewish writers have a tradition that Abram had been cast into a fiery furnace for refusing to worship the Babylonian idols. And Jewish writings state that Abram was miraculously delivered from the uh, fiery furnace for not worshiping these idols. And if that's true, of course, it won't be the last time God does this for his people. Now, we can't be sure of that, but that's, I just wanted you to know that Jewish tradition says that. But the argument here is that God has mercifully snatched Abram like a brand plucked from the fire, to use a Puritan phrase, a brand plucked from the fire. He has pulled you. I called you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. I delivered you. And is this not a great picture of what you and I have experienced in our own salvation? You and I have been delivered from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1 says, transferred into the kingdom of his son. You and I have been plucked out. We've been called out of darkness into wonderful light. You and I have been called out of the the paganism, the humanism, the isms of this world into the kingdom of heaven. We've been called by God out of our flesh and into the spirit. And so what a great picture. God is saying to him, I am the Lord who I did this initiative work. I plucked you out. I brought you out. Not only did he mercifully snatch him out, but he mercifully sends him in. He says, I called you out and I sent you in. I didn't just call you out to stand there and wonder what's next. No, I actually called you into a spacious space. And can't we also, in our salvation, say, God not only plucked me out of the muck and the mire, the slow of despond, he pulled me out, but then he set my feet on a rock. He brought me into a people, Once I was not a people, but now I'm alongside, I'm with the people of God. He gave me a new heart and a new identity, a new name. So it's a glorious picture. But look at verse 8. Now, there's a but here, and this is not a uh, condemnable question. Abram's not in trouble for asking. This is not a question of doubt. It's a question of desire. He wants to know. And so verse 8, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
Again, addressing God with this honoring title, Yahweh Adonai, Lord God, the sovereign ruler. And his question is simple. How am I to know? In other words, what assurances can you give me that this will indeed happen? Remember, God has already promised Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who dishonor you. And Abram has seen those promises already begin to come to pass. And so God has already confirmed to Abram, look up, see the stars, look down at the dust of the earth. Can you count those? You, you, you can't count them, Abram. Don't, please don't try. I'm going to be faithful to uh, let your offspring be like this, vast, innumerable, and plentiful. God didn't need to confirm this to Abram. What God could have said in response to this is, I said it, Abram, and my word is enough. And we, as Christians, we need to know God's word is enough. We don't need to, listen, we don't need to look for signs, for experiences, for goosebumps to say this is God speaking. Uh, we have a more sure word, Peter says, through the scriptures. Peter saw the living God. He saw Jesus. He could say, I was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. And when we came back down, I could testify that this was the Son of the living God. And yet, Peter says, even though I had that experience, we have a more sure word. We, we, I have something more tangible, more real than seeing Jesus in the flesh. And that is uh, what the Scripture has testified about him. And so God has promised all of this will come to pass, Abram, through your own loins. But now we come to a confirmation of the promise of the land. So here's what God's going to do to let him know. How do I know? God says, okay, here's what you're to do. He gives him an instruction to bring five things. Verse 9. He said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. This sounds like we're going to men's group for a barbecue. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now, at first glance, you might think this is a sacrifice that's being offered. But there's a lot more happening here. So first notice with me that God is instructing Abram to bring him a three-year-old heifer, which is a young female uh, cow, essentially, that had not yet had offspring. So he's to bring this heifer. He's also, uh, secondly, to bring a three-year-old female goat and ram. So he's to bring these three larger animals and then a couple birds. Now, I've been given some strange shopping lists, lists from my wife in the course of 22 years of marriage. But if she ever said, I, just, I need a three-year-old heifer, I need a three-year-old goat, I need a few birds, um, I'm going to think this is the most interesting pot roast that we have ever had, or we're offering some sort of pagan sacrifice. But notice that Abram knows exactly what to do. He brings the animals. There's no instruction from God to cut them in half. And so there's more happening here. He cuts them in half. He lays the cut carcasses across from one another uh, and then lays the birds there, the slain birds as well. Now, the ancient Near East custom for making agreements, for making covenants, was not a handshake deal, was not a contract, but it was to sacrificially cut the animal, specifically these animals, in half, lay them on the ground apart from one another with a small pathway in between where that pathway would be ostensibly filled with the blood that had been spilled from these animals. 
and the sealing of the covenant or the signature on the contract, to use our vernacular, was for both parties to stand on opposite ends of these slain animals and to walk, to tread through the blood in between these animals back and forth and to recite the terms of the agreement, the terms of the covenant out loud. And the idea was, if I don't keep my end of the agreement, then let me be as these slain animals are. In fact, we see this in Jeremiah 34, 18, if you're taking note. You can jot this verse down. It says, God says, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, by the way, this is speaking not of Abram, but of the Mosaic covenant. He says, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So this is a covenant sealed in blood. It's a covenant that normally would expect both parties to keep their end of the agreement or you face the fate the same fate as the slain animals. In other words, it's multilateral. David Gusick says, when Abram, quote, had his doubts and wanted assurance from the Lord, God said to him clearly, let's sign a contract and settle this once for all, end quote. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been waiting with anxiety for the sellers to accept your offer? And you're just waiting for the signature. Have you ever gotten down on bended knee and you hoped that she would say yes? and you're waiting for her response, I proposed to my wife at church uh, in front of a a large audience just to put the pressure on. (laughs) And she hesitated for a minute just to be funny. She's like, well, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, this could go really south. What's going to happen? You know, what do I do with this ring if she says, no, there's no return policy. What do I do with this thing? You see, in our default state, we long to have that assurance, that confidence that what we're longing for will come to pass. And so Abram says, how will I know? God says, here's how you'll know. But then something ominous happens in verses 11 and 12. The dead bodies of the animals are there. He's prepared them rightly, but verse 11. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now, of course, the scavenging birds would come attracted to the dead animals, and Abram has to ward them off. And this seems to be a hint at what is about to be communicated to Abram by God. In other words, in the midst of good news of a land, there's also an outside threat that needs to be warded off, fought off. And there's dread and there's great darkness and there's slumber. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, says this, quote, The setting is somber in every detail, partly, no doubt, to emphasize that the covenant must be carried through in the teeth of opposition and by means of great judgments. But the darkness, smoke, and fire, like, the, like those of Sinai, chiefly proclaim the terror of the Lord, the impact of holiness on sin. Even the new covenant would be inaugurated in darkness and earthquake, end quote. So with that in mind, let's look at the second section, how God's course for Abram is certain. So we have this scene set before us. Abram is waiting on his side. God, he's waiting for God to prepare to walk through with him, so to speak. And yet, there seems to be a delay. So he's fighting off the birds, then he falls asleep, and there's great darkness. Now, look at verse 13. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted, 
for 400 years. Abram had said, how will I know? And God says here, know for certain. Remove all doubt, child of God. What I will speak to you through my word is sufficient. God says here, your offspring will be sojourners. Another word for that is alien or someone who is a stranger or a pilgrim. Not only will they be sojourners, but they'll also be servants. They're going to experience affliction for 400 years. Now, this, of course, is a prophecy concerning Israel's time of bondage later in Egypt. So Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is going to have 12 sons. And his beloved son, Joseph, as we'll see in Genesis, is going to be sold into slavery by his brothers. Eventually, as you know the story, you went to Sunday school, he ends up in Egypt through a series of providential circumstances. But in the midst of that, God was orchestrating the evil of Joseph's brothers. God was working it for good. And so Joseph ends up becoming what equates to the prime minister in Egypt over the entire empire. And when Joseph's family suffers from the massive famine, they end up coming to Egypt to receive provision and protection from Joseph, their kinsman. But they don't know it's Joseph at first. And so God is giving... Listen up. God is giving Abram assurance even in a time of darkness. God is going to be working this for the good of Israel. You see, when we open the beginning pages of the book of Exodus, we read these daunting words. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's bad news. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens they built for pharaoh's store cities pithom and ramses but the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the egyptians were in dread of the people of israel so they ruthlessly made the people of israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Just had the opportunity in D.C. to go to the Holocaust Museum and see what uh, many Israelites uh, have experienced uh, even in this last century. And so there's, there's as I read these words, there's, um, there's a reality to the the bitterness to the, to the slavery, to the hard work, and to the oppression. And so God is telling Abram in advance, this is coming. But notice what go, God goes on to say in verse 14 to Abram. He says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possession. So Israel, Abram's descendants, will be oppressed as sojourners and servants and have 400 years of affliction, but... God would still be faithful to judge Egypt, her enemy, and provide for his people even at the same time. In judgment, how does that happen? How does in judgment one person is judged and then the people of Israel uh, are uh, given plunder? Well, we'll see that in Exodus. But look at verse 15. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet 
complete. You, Abram, you will not inherit this land eventually. You will die old, and it will be four generations or 400 years. Uh, now, those round numbers are, um, are not contradictions. How can it be 400 years and four generations? Uh, often the word generation can mean lifetime, and 100 years is an easy way to summarize this. Exodus 12.40 tells us this was around 430 years, so God is approximating. He's not giving specific dates uh, for us to stress out over. Just giving a general, it's going to be around 400 years. But notice that God says in the end of verse 16 that there's a purpose behind this. This isn't just random. The 400 years, there's actually something God's accomplishing. It says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that the sinful, immoral, idolatrous Amorite people were storing up for themselves wrath from God. I want to encourage you to read Leviticus 18 through 20 sometime this week. How many pastors tell their congregation, I want you to read Leviticus 18 through 20 this week in your quiet time. But I do. I want you to take some time this week, jot it down, Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. And when you open that section of Leviticus, of the law, you read these interesting words. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You see, at first glance, Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 seem very random and very disturbing as a list of commands. This is often what atheists will use to quote and try to mock Christianity. Things like don't uncover your family's nakedness. Don't lie with men like you would with women. Don't offer your children to Molech through child sacrifice. Don't turn to mediums. And the list goes on and on and on. And it seems random at first glance, but it's not random. You see, the whole context of Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 describe in detail what the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Amorites, were doing prior to God vomiting them out of the land. Where, when Israel under Joshua comes into the land. And so God says, do not do as they do. These sinful Amorites were storing up for themselves wrath from a holy God for the day of judgment. But see, the scripture says, even in wrath, God remembers mercy. God, a lot of people say, that's not fair. What's well, fair is that God says, it's going to happen in a half hour. The Amorites are going to be wiped out. But see, God didn't destroy them right then and there. He graciously gave them 400 plus years to repent. Numbers 21 details for us how Israel defeated the Amorites and captured the land. So in all of this, God is at work. And here's what I want you to, to walk away from this small section of scripture that we just looked at. That Abram knew for certain that his descendants would experience a complicated time. But even so, God was faithful to work even the idolatries of pagan nations toward his own end for his people and for the praise of his glorious grace. You see, the bondage in Egypt was not a surprise to God. 
as much as Greg Boyd will theorize with his proposition of open theism, well, God doesn't really know what's going to happen to you. He didn't know you were going to have cancer. I mean, how does that bring any hope or any encouragement? If God doesn't know the end from the beginning, then what do we have? We have a God who's not sovereign, who's not supreme. See, it's a great comfort for us to know that God is working that cancer for good, even if you pray for healing and your healing is graduating to heaven. God's still working that suffering for good. You see, as Paul addressed the unbelieving philosophers of the Areopagus in Athens, we read in Acts 19 these comforting words. These are words of comfort. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, if you're an unbeliever, this is terrifying. The psalmist would say in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? There's nowhere that I can flee from an omnipresent God. But for the Christian, this this is great words of encouragement. Psalm 37 is a psalm I love to meditate on, and we don't have time to read it. But there, the psalmist says, wait patiently on the Lord. Don't fret when you see evildoers. Don't get caught up in comparisons when you see the wicked. Wait on the Lord. Trust him. Commit your way. Stay meek. And so like Abraham's descendants, you and I can trust that God is directing even our paths. And this truth that God is at work even when you don't see him, that he's sovereignly working behind the scenes in the circumstances in your life, that shouldn't cause you to be angry with God. That should cause you to be in awe of God, to be filled with gratitude and submission and with peace that surpasses all understanding. So the next time you're anxious, remember that God is working behind the scenes as he was working here. Well, let's look at this third section and how God's covenant with Abram is unilateral. And this is the part I really want to focus on. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, uh, for the doctrine nerds, the theology nerds, which hopefully we all are, this is what is known as a theophany. This is when the invisible God who is spirit chooses to make himself visibly known or seen through creation, through what we would call an intense manifestation of his presence that is accompanied by an extraordinary visual display. It's extraordinary. So in this case, God is represented in the dark of night as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. This is not the only time that God will be seen in smoke and fire. In Exodus 33, God reveals himself to Moses Moses wants to see God's glory. And remember, he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by him and he declares to him his nature, that he's a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, but he doesn't overlook wickedness and transgression. Uh, We read there that he descended in the cloud. Remember, when God led Israel through the wilderness, it was in two different theophanies, right? It was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. At Mount Sinai and in the temple with his Shekinah glory, it was a cloud of smoke that represented the presence of God. God is spirit. And so he he doesn't have to manifest in these ways. Remember when God speaks to Moses, this is very extraordinary. 
Remember, it was a bush that was burning, but the bush didn't get consumed. It was a bush on fire, but it wasn't consumed. We also see that fire from heaven often descended to consume the sacrifices that God would, was pleased with. So the smoking fire pot, the flaming torch, represent the presence of God himself, passing between the pieces of the dead flesh through the blood and confirming the covenant. But notice what didn't happen. Did you catch what didn't happen in verse 17? Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the smoking fire pot, the flaming torch passed between the pieces, and so did Abram. No, this is not a multilateral agreement. This was a unilateral one. So the, listen, the certainty of God's covenant was not based on who Abram was and what Abram would do. It was based on who God is and what God would do. Abram wasn't asking God, hey God, can you help me out? Can you co-sign on this loan for me? Hey God, let's haggle over these terms. No, he watched passively on the sideline as God established the terms of the covenant and Abram simply accepted. Alexander McLaren says, quote, a divine covenant is not a mutual agreement on equal terms between two parties, but a divine promise assured, end quote. This is the verse that R.C. Sproul said, if I have nothing else in the scripture, give me one verse, it would be Genesis 15, 17. It's a reminder that God is faithful alone to keep covenant. Well, look at verse 18. This is what he's saying as he announces the terms to Abram walking in between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Termites, they're all here. God promised that this would happen. Abram, your offspring will inherit a spacious space flowing with milk and honey. You won't have to purchase it. It will be yours by birthright, by the covenant that I have established and I will be faithful to keep. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I are recipients of a new and greater covenant. But it is one that's foreshadowed by this Abrahamic covenant. You see, God has done the work from first to last. There's blood that has been shed. There was an inheritance secured. You enter the promise by faith, not by work. Spurgeon said this, quote, the man who can fully understand the word covenant is a theologian. That is the key of all theology, the covenant of works by which we fell and the covenant of grace by which we stand. Christ fulfilling the covenant for us as our surety and representative, fulfilling it by the shedding of his blood, so leaving for us a covenant wholly fulfilled on our side, which is Christ's side, and only to be fulfilled now by God. You see, church, God's covenant of grace with us is unilateral. There is nothing you and I can do to add to its efficacy, and there's nothing we can do to detract from its power. And so as we consider these truths this morning, I have four application points for us if you're taking note. And the first one will be very brief. The first one is, just found this to be encouraging. God first bestows his grace through what we consider ordinary. 
I find it fascinating that Abram was asked, he was asking God to confirm his promise to him regarding the land. And God's answer to him is something less supernatural and something much more ordinary. It's what the people did. They made these sort of agreements. And so I just want to encourage us, may we never overlook the simplicity of the ordinary means of grace. The simplicity of fellowshipping with the God of the covenant through the ordinances he's given the church, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through these ordinary means of grace, prayer and scripture reading. They're not spectacular. They're not sensational in themselves. You take bread and you take juice in themselves. That doesn't seem very spectacular. You go underwater. And yes, we practice baptism by immersion. And we're excited to do that soon out at the beach. Uh, You open a book. Of course, it's the word of the living God, but in themselves, these seem like very ordinary things, and yet there's something more supernatural at work. And so I just wanted to encourage us with that, uh, that the God who ordains these ordinary means is to be found and cherished through them. So that's the first thing I'd say. But second, I want to encourage us that God's independent covenant removes us from the equation. You see, our salvation is not a synergistic partnership. You guys have heard that word synergy before. You see this in business a lot. Two parties will work together in harmony. Synergistic partnership. You never hear that in weddings, but that is a good description of marriage, isn't it? There's two, there's synergy, there's partnership. We're working together, my wife and I. We're fulfilling the roles that God has given us. We're both giving the Lord all the glory and we're serving one another by laying down our lives. That's a great picture. We're both doing our part. Uh, We learned in premarital counseling years ago that uh, I'm not to give 50%, she gives 50%. No, we both give 100%. And so that's a great picture. But that's not our salvation. I don't produce the faith that's necessary for my salvation. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I must be born again from above, regenerated by the Spirit of God and brought from death to life. When that happens, I'm saved by grace through faith. It's not of myself, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that I can't boast and say, I found Jesus. Now, salvation is not synergistic where we do our part, God will do his part. No, it's monergistic. It's not cooperating with God. It's God acting alone, doing the work of salvation and regeneration in us. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says all this is from God, and he has just described uh, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And so thankfully, God doesn't invite Abram, keep your end, walk through the blood with me, make a covenant with me. No. He doesn't make a covenant with God. He enters into this covenant by faith. And in the same way, God establishes his covenant with us. It's unilateral. It's through Christ the one whose blood was shed, and through his blood we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The way Martin Luther put it is best, probably. He said, quote, if grace depends on our cooperation, then it is no longer grace, end quote. So know that this morning, that God is working independently in our salvation. Thirdly, the ground of our assurance is not ourselves. Amen? Man, that's good news. What is the ground of your assurance before a holy God? For Abram, it's not his ability to keep this covenant. Uh, He simply trusted by faith that God would do it. What's the ground of your assurance this morning before a holy God? 
Is it your ability to stay sinless? Good luck. Let me know how that's working out for you. You say, it's working great. I never sin. Oh, okay, wonderful. So pride, arrogance, and spiritual blindness are your vices. All right, I know how to pray for you now. Our ability to stay sinless is not the ground of our assurance. Is it your gifts? Is it your abilities? Is it your seriousness to obey him? I promise, Lord, I will read the Bible this time. I will evangelize. I will be a good Christian boy or girl. I will make you happy with my performance. So as long as you're achieving works for the Lord, then you're under his graces. But if you slip up, if you slack off, then now your salvation is in jeopardy. What kind of perverse idolatry is this? We just prayed it earlier in our time of confession. God will be a debtor to no man. You have nothing if it weren't given to you by God. So your performance, your charisma, your charismata, these are not the ground of your assurance. D.A. Carson would remind us it's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. It's the blood of the lamb. And so when Abram cuts the covenant, it's not him cutting it, it's God cutting it alone. And God does the same with you and with me. We are simply and gloriously recipients. The ground of our assurance is not ourselves. That's wonderful good news. But finally, number four, I find it comforting that God is at work even in the times of darkness and doom. What seems ominous for Israel would indeed be a time of bondage and trouble. There's no minimizing that. The birds of prey were not metaphorical vultures. They were actually birds that Abram needed to ward off. The oppressive decades in Egypt experienced by real men and women and children, these were not just sermon illustrations. These were real people that suffered. So in this room and in this church, there are some of us who are literally experiencing the darkness and doom of despair and even death. Some of you have, in this room have experienced abuse, pain, and loss. And you wonder, how can God use any of that for good? Well, you'd find some counsel from the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 1, I encourage you to go read that. He explains that we can comfort others with the same comfort that we ourselves have received. But he goes on to say, that we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And someone says, well, wait, I thought God doesn't give us more than we can bear. Oh, well, that's not true biblically. He doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. But here Paul says, we were burdened beyond our strength. Things were so bad, Paul says, we felt like death was a better option. You don't need to raise your hand, but I know some of you have been there. It would just be better if I died. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. He doesn't say, don't ever think that. He says, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But here's why. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He, past tense, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will, future tense, deliver us. On him we set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Do you see what he's saying? God was stripping us of all self-sufficiency so that even if death occurred, our hope was not to avoid the trouble that might lead to death, but to trust God that even if it leads to us being killed, God has the power to raise us from the dead. So what do we do? We set our hope on the God who delivers but we also look for the help of the prayers 
of the saints. So in your time of despair, you set your hope on the God of the resurrection and you lean, not away from, but lean into and upon the prayers of the saints. So I'm encouraged by this text. I'm encouraged to know that God is at work in our salvation from first to last. And I pray that we would come to understand this truth in a real practical way. Amen? Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer and in song. God of heaven, you are God most high. You are Yahweh Adonai. You are the I am. And we thank you this morning, Lord, that the ground of our assurance is not our own ability to keep the law. Lord, that is something we are relieved to know because the law stands over us and condemns us and tells us that we will not achieve the perfect standard of righteousness. But as we've learned from this in last week's text from Genesis 15, you credit righteousness to those who trust you by faith. So this morning we come emptying our self-sufficiency, emptying any of our own reliance upon our works, and we again fall upon the work of Christ. Lord, you are the God of Abraham, and so we praise you this morning, and we thank you that we have been justified by faith. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I pray that you would equip and encourage us as we now close in song. Refresh and remind us that you are the God of Abram and that you will fulfill all of your promises to the very end. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.